Section 32 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Berganza, Chapter 3, Part 4. On the first alarm of the king's illness, the queen flew to his apartment, and when Lord Aylesbury returned with the Duke of York, they found her there. Catherine was soon followed by her sister-in-law, the Duchess of York, whose verbal narrative of the agitating scene furnishes some curious facts. I hastened to the chamber, said she. As soon as I was informed of His Majesty's state, I found there the Queen, the Duke of York, who is now King, the Chancellor, and the First Gentleman of the Bedchamber. It was a frightful spectacle, and startled me at first. The King was in a chair. They had placed a hot iron on his head, and they held his teeth open by force. When I had been there some time, the Queen, who had hitherto remained speechless, came to me and said, My sister, I beseech you to tell the Duke, who knows the King's sentiments with regards to the Catholic religion as well as I do, to endeavor to take advantage of some good moments. Overpowered by her feelings, Catherine gave way to such paroxysms of grief that she was seized with convulsive fits and was carried out of the room. The Duchess of York remained for the purpose of speaking to the Duke, her husband, but he was so completely engrossed by the state of his royal brother that it was more than an hour before she succeeded in catching his eye. She then made a sign that she wished to speak to him. He came to her, and she communicated the message with which the Queen, her sister-in-law, had charged her. I know it, he replied, and I think of nothing else. Thus we see that the first hint on the subject of Charles's reconciliation with the Church of Rome proceeded from Queen Catherine. The Earl of Aylesbury indignantly refutes Burnett's fiction. That the Duchess of Portsmouth sat on the king's bed and waited on him as a wife would on her husband. My king and master, says the Earl, falling on me in his fit, I ordered him to be blooded, and went and fetched the Duke of York. When we came to the bedside, we found the Queen there, and the impostor, that is Burnett, says it was the Duchess of Portsmouth was there. The strong remedies that were used, acting as stimulants, caused a temporary rally in the royal patient. After the fit had lasted two hours, all but seven minutes, he recovered his faculties, and the first word he uttered was to ask for the queen. She was incapable of attending his summons at that moment, and sent a message to excuse her absence, and to beg his pardon, if she had ever offended him in her life. Alas, poor lady, exclaimed Charles, she begged my pardon, I beg hers with all my heart. After he was placed in his bed, Catherine was permitted to come to him, but she was unable to articulate a word. Prayers were solemnly made in all the churches for his recovery, especially in the royal chapels. I never, writes the Earl of Chesterfield, saw sorrow better expressed than it was yesterday in the looks of all the common people, whose hearts, unlike to courtiers, might be read in their faces. A deceptive amendment took place that day, and it was hoped the king was out of danger. This favorable report was received with great joy. The bells rang, and innumerable bonfires were kindled. A fatal change, however, succeeded, and a general gloom prevailed. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishops of London, of Durham, and Bath and Wells, were in constant attendance to offer their spiritual aid. 
On Thursday morning, that holy prelate, Dr. Ken, took upon himself the solemn duty of warning his royal master of his danger, and reminded him of the necessity of penance and prayer. Charles received the intimation with firmness and resignation, and the bishop proceeded to read the office for the sick and dying from the liturgy. He paused and then asked the king, if he repented of his sins. Charles declaring his contrition, Ken pronounced the absolution from the service for the sick and inquired if he might proceed to the administration of the Lord's Supper. Charles did not answer. Ken, in a louder voice, repeated the question, and the dying man replied, There will be time enough for that. The elements were placed on a table in readiness for the solemn rite, but when the king was entreated to communicate, he merely said, he would think of it. Meantime, his brother, the Duke of York, was urged from two very opposite quarters, the Queen and the Duchess of Portsmouth, to obtain for the King the last offices prescribed by the Church of Rome. The Duke was greatly perplexed, naturally expecting that the King would, in that awful hour, lay aside his habitual dissimulation and proclaim the real state of his mind. It was, withal, a perilous thing to bring any priest to the royal chamber on such a mission, for by the laws of England, it was death for anyone to reconcile a person to the Romish church. Time fled, the king gave no other intimation of his preparation for eternity than an evident disinclination to die in communion with that church of which he had been a nominal member all his life, and of which he was recognized as the head. The queen, exhausted by her long attendance by his bedside and overpowered by her feelings, had been removed from his chamber in convulsions. She lay in a long and death-like swoon in her own apartment, and her physicians judged it necessary to bleed her and keep her as quiet as the violence of her grief would permit. The Duchess of Portsmouth was in a state of restless excitement. Her intriguing disposition prompted her to interfere, but she was not permitted to approach the king. At five o'clock, the French ambassador visited her, and she immediately took him into a little closet and said, I am going to trust you with a secret which, if divulged, may cost me my head. The king is, in his heart, a Catholic, but he is surrounded by Protestant bishops. No one speaks to him of his danger or of God. This observation, while it proves how little the Duchess of Portsmouth knew of what had passed between the king and Dr. Ken, is of itself a refutation of Burnett's fiction, that she was in the royal chamber, attending on her dying paramour, and no less so to his calumny on that holy prelate, of whom he says, Ken was also censured for another piece of indecency. He presented the Duke of Richmond, Lady Portsmouth's son, to be blessed by the king. Well may an honest eyewitness of the deathbed of Charles call a historian who could deliberately pen such falsehoods an impostor. The heavenly-minded, the courageous, the conscientious Ken, who never scrupled to withstand kings in the day of their wrath when their wills interfered with his Christian duties, was not a very likely person to act the odious part assigned to him by his slanderer. The Duchess of Portsmouth, shameless as she was, did not venture to cross the threshold of the chamber of death, where he, as even Burnett acknowledges, labored much to awaken the king's conscience, and spake like a man inspired. I cannot with propriety enter the room, said she, 
besides which the queen is almost constantly there the duke of york is too much occupied with business to take the care he ought of the king's conscience tell him that i conjure him to look to the safety of the king's soul he commands the room and can turn out whom he will lose no time or it will be too late what mockery what presumptuous hypocrisy was such a speech from a woman who had lived with the king for upwards of twelve years in open violation of the laws of god no wonder that she considered his soul in danger but that she should think so much of his creed and so little of his sins the gross and deadly sins of which she had been partaker with him appears passing strange and that her conscience should not have been in the slightest degree awakened to a sense of her own guilt and responsibility affords a startling instance of spiritual insensibility self-delusion and hardness of heart it may be argued that she placed a superstitious reliance on the mere outward forms and ceremonies of the church of which she was a nominal member but those who saw her dealing out her encouraging smiles and bonbons to the perjured witnesses who swore away the life of the venerable lord stafford and knew that in the prosecutions for the popish plot she acted as the tool of shaftesbury and sunderland and the accomplice of oates and fitzharris must have regarded her professions as nothing but grimace she knew that the duke of york would be on the throne in a few hours and she played on his weak point james was the very person to cajole on the subject of religion he who could believe in the conversion of sunderland was not likely to refuse his credence to the solicitude expressed even by the duchess of portsmouth for his brother's salvation the king's chamber was crowded with people day and night five bishops twenty-five peers and privy councillors besides foreign ambassadors his doctors and attendants what chance poor man had he of sleep or quiet the air must have been exhausted and recovery rendered impossible by the fatal restraints that were imposed by the rigor of state etiquette he appeared fatigued by the number of ladies who claimed the privilege of following the queen whenever she came into his chamber he often apologized to this courtly company that he was so long in dying regretted the trouble he caused and expressed his weariness of life the duke of york who loved him better than anything on earth was almost always on his knees by his bedside and in tears yet the constant presence of the privileged spectators of the expiring monarch's sufferings prevented them from speaking in confidence to each other on any subject barillon in order to deliver the message of the duchess of portsmouth to the heir presumptive of the realm was obliged to request him to go with him into the queen's chamber which opened into that of the king their entrance into catherine's apartment must have been at a most unseasonable time for she was fainting and her medical attendants had come to bleed her barillon made his communication nevertheless the duke seemed to recover himself from a deep reverie you are right said he there is no time to lose and i will hazard every peril rather than not do my duty on this occasion he returned to the dying monarch and stood by his bedside when the bishops once more entreated the king to receive the sacrament charles in a faint voice replied i will consider about it james then requesting the company to stand a little from the bed knelt down and putting his mouth to his majesty's ear said in a low voice sir you have just refused the sacrament of the protestant church will you receive those of the catholic ah said the dying prince i would give everything in the world to have a priest i will bring you one said the duke 
For God's sake, brother, do, exclaimed the king. But, added he, will you not expose yourself to danger by doing it? Sir, though it costs me my life, I will bring you one, returned the duke. He re-entered the queen's chamber, where Barillon still lingered, having waited for him nearly an hour. He told the ambassador that he had been compelled to repeat his words many times over to the king before he could make him understand, for his hearing had begun to fail. He entreated Barillon to bring a priest, as those of the duchess were too well known. The wary diplomatist replied, that he would do so with pleasure, only it would consume too much time, adding, that as he came in, he saw all the queen's priests in a closet near her chamber. James dispatched Count Castel Malor to fetch one of them. Though I should venture my head for it, said the count, I would do it, but I know there is not one of her majesty's priests speaks English. James begged him to go to the Venetian minister and entreated him to send an English priest. At that moment, Father Huddleston appeared, an aged ecclesiastic, who had preserved the king's life five and thirty years ago, by concealing him after the retreat from Worcester. He was, in consequence of that loyal service, exempt from all the penalties attached to the exercise of his function as a Catholic priest, and apparently the only person, of all that had been sent for, who ventured to obey the summons. He arrived between seven and eight o'clock, but came in such haste, that he had not brought the host. As soon as he learned the state of the case, he dispatched one of the queen's Portuguese priests to fetch all that was required for the administration of the last rites of the Church of Rome from St. James's Chapel. The necessary preliminary of clearing the chamber for his introduction appeared to puzzle the Duke of York. He and the French ambassador considered over many schemes for that purpose, all of which seemed objectionable. Among the rest, the duke suggested the feasibility of leading the queen in once more to take her last farewell of her dying lord, which might afford a proper reason for asking the company to withdraw, but Catherine was not sufficiently recovered to be brought forward. The duke at last ventured to act on his own authority. Kneeling down by the pillow of his dying brother, he told him, in a whisper, that all things were ready, and Father Huddleston was in attendance, and asked if he would see him. The king replied in a loud voice, Yes, with all my heart. And the duke, turning to the company, said, Gentlemen, his majesty wishes everyone to withdraw, but the earls of Bath and Feversham. Then Father Huddleston, being disguised in a wig and cassock, the usual costume of the clergy of the Church of England, was brought by a secret staircase through the queen's chamber, and introduced through the door of the ruelle, near the bed's head, into the alcove in which his majesty's bed stood. The Duke of York presented him to the king with these words, Sir, I bring you a man who once saved your life. He now comes to save your soul. Charles, in a faint voice, replied, He is welcome. The king, having made his confession, Huddleston bade him repeat the following prayer, which is called by him an act of contrition. O oh, my Lord God, with my whole heart and soul, I detest all the sins of my life past, for the love of thee, whom I love above all things, and I firmly purpose, by thy holy grace, never to offend thee more. Amen, sweet Jesus, amen. Into thy hands, sweet Jesus, I commend my soul. Mercy, sweet Jesus, mercy. Huddleston then gave him absolution, and administered extreme unction and the sacrament according to the rites of the Church of Rome. 
In half an hour, the company was readmitted into the royal chamber, and then the king prayed heartily with Ken. But when that prelate again asked him to receive the sacrament, he replied, that he hoped he had already made his peace with God. According to Barillon, the excitement produced a temporary rally in the royal patient, so that the enthusiastic began to hope God was about to work a miracle by his cure. The physicians judged differently and pronounced that he would not outlive the night. It is, however, certain that he appeared much revived and spoke more distinctly and cheerfully than he had yet done. He addressed the Duke of York in terms so full of affection that he and all present melted into tears. The physicians now permitted the queen to come to him. He was in his perfect senses when she entered. James declared that he spoke most tenderly to her. She threw herself on her knees and once more repeated her request that he would forgive her for all her offenses. And Charles replied again that she had offended in nothing, but that he had been guilty of many offenses against her and he asked her pardon. The violence of her grief prevented her from being a witness of his last agony. Her physicians forbade her to quit her chamber again. A last message of mutual forgiveness was, however, exchanged between the royal pair. Burnett's false statement, that the king never mentioned the queen, is thus entirely contradicted by the evidence of those who were present on that melancholy occasion. Burnett also affirms, that the king recommended the Duchess of Portsmouth over and over again to his brother, saying, He had always loved her, and now loved her to the last. Now Barillon, the only person present who mentions the name of this woman at all, merely says, That the king twice recommended the Duchess of Portsmouth and her son, the Duke of Richmond, to his brother, and also his other children. He never spoke of Monmouth. During the night, the king occasionally slumbered, but from time to time awoke in mortal agony. He bore all with manly firmness and resignation. About two o'clock in the morning, he cast his eyes on the Duke of York, who was kneeling by his bed, kissing his hand, and with a burst of fraternal tenderness, called him the best of friends and brothers, begged him to forgive the harshness with which he had sometimes treated him, especially in sending him into exile. He told him, that he now willingly left all he had for his sake, and prayed God to send him a long and prosperous reign, and entreated him for his sake, to be kind to his children, and not let poor Nelly starve. He preserved his patience and composure during the long weary night. His royal sister-in-law declared, that it was impossible for anyone to face death with greater composure. At six in the morning, he asked, what o'clock it was? And when they told him, he said, Draw up the curtain and open the window, that I may behold the light of the sun for the last time. There was a timepiece in his chamber, which was only wound up once in eight days, and he reminded his attendants that it must be wound up that morning, or the works would be deranged. He was seized soon after with acute pain in the right side, attended with difficulty of breathing, on which they took eight ounces of blood from his arm. It caused a temporary relief but at eight o'clock his speech failed, he lost consciousness at ten, and at twelve he ceased to breathe. He died, says the Earl of Chesterfield, who was with him for the last eight and forty hours, as a good Christian, praying often for God's and Christ's mercy, as a man of great and undaunted courage, never repining at the loss of life and three kingdoms, and as a good-natured man, in a thousand particulars, 
he asked his subjects pardon for anything that had been neglected or acted contrary to the rules of good government. Charles died in the 54th year of his age and the 36th of his reign, but he can only be reckoned a sovereign de facto from the date of his restoration. He had been married to Catherine of Braganza two and twenty years, eight months and twenty days. The Portuguese historians impute Charles's conversion to the Roman Catholic faith entirely to the influence of his queen, and by them it is recorded that she had many masses sung in Lisbon for the repose of his soul on the anniversary of his death as long as she lived. It is certain that she loved him passionately and cherished his memory with devoted tenderness. The same day on which Charles II died, the Privy Council, after the proclamation of his brother was over and their homage paid, waited on the royal widow with an address of condolence. King James also paid her a brotherly visit and offered her every mark of affectionate sympathy and respect. Catherine received all visitors on a bed of mourning, the walls, the floor, and even the ceiling of her chamber being covered with black, the day of light excluded, and tapers burning, having to the full as lugubrious an appearance as the apartment in which the remains of her royal consort lay in state under his canopied hearse. Charles was buried on the 14th of February in Westminster Abbey at midnight. His funeral was comparatively private, on account of the proscribed rites of the creed he had adopted on his deathbed. Prince George of Denmark was chief mourner. The Privy Council, the members of the royal household, and most of the nobility, however, attended their royal master to the grave. His effigy in wax, clothed in black velvet, with point lace collar and ruffles, according to the costume worn by him at the time of his death, is preserved in Westminster Abbey. Notwithstanding the many errors of Charles II, both as a sovereign and a man, he was greatly beloved in life and passionately lamented in death by the great body of the people. The faction who had labored to exclude James II from the regal succession endeavored to excite the popular fury against him by circulating reports that the death of Charles had been caused by poison. This cruel calumny on the new sovereign was ushered in by mysterious whispers that the ghost of King Charles had been seen, like the buried majesty of Denmark in Hamlet, to revisit the glimpses of the moon, not armed cap a pie, but attired in a full suit of deep mourning for himself. The following minutely circumstantial account of this alleged apparition from a contemporary periodical affords an amusing picture of the superstition or the knavery of the times. A gentleman and lady, persons of very good note and credit, belonging to the court, gave the following relation. In the reign of the late King James, presently after the death of King Charles II, as they were walking in the long gallery at Whitehall, in the evening about candlelight, at the further end of the gallery there seemed, as it were, an arched door, and in the middle a tall black man, standing bolt upright, and through the door there appeared a light, as if many flambeaux burning. Whereupon they stood still, thinking it to be King James, or some great courtier in mourning, but not seeing him stir, they began to be amazed, and had not the power to speak to one another. However, the gentleman took such a full view of him as to see he had plain white muslin ruffles and cravat, quilled very neat, and they both saw his face and were satisfied it was that of King Charles II. If ever they had seen him in their lives, having taken such a particular view as they thought they could not be mistaken. Whereupon the gentleman, calling to the sentinel to bring a light, 
He took the candle in his hand and searched for the door, but in the place where it appeared, he could see nothing but the bare wainscot. He then asked the sentinel whether there was no door thereabouts, who replied, there was none within a stone's cast, and seeing him disturbed, asked if he had seen anything, which the gentleman would not acknowledge. The gentleman likewise charged the lady with him not to reveal what she had seen, lest they might both come into trouble, but they are now both ready to make an affidavit of it, or give a fuller account if required. Queen Catherine was treated with the greatest consideration and kindness by James II and his queen, after the death of her royal husband. She even continued to occupy the same apartments in Whitehall, which had pertained to her while queen consort, for upwards of two months after she became queen dowager. It was not till the 8th of April that she removed to her own palace, Somerset House, where she held her dowager court with suitable splendor. Before she left Whitehall, she received autograph letters of condolence from all the sovereigns in Europe. Whenever she was weary of the fatigues and pomp of royalty, she sought repose in her country residence at Hammersmith, where she enjoyed, in privacy, the society of the nuns who lived under her protection in the adjoining convent. Her Lord Chamberlain, the Earl of Feversham, had the entire control of her household and the management of her affairs. The favor with which she was suspected of regarding him obtained for him the nickname of King Dowager. Some years after Catherine of Braganza's death, the Princess Louisa, James II's youngest daughter, asked the exiled queen, her mother, if there were any foundation for what the world had said of the partiality of Catherine, the Dowager of England, for the Earl of Feversham. Mary Beatrice, herself the most correct of women, replied, there was none. The testimony of so virtuous a queen is certainly quite sufficient to acquit her royal sister-in-law of one of those unsupported scandals, which vulgar malignity occasionally endeavors to fix on persons of exalted station. The goodness of Catherine's heart was shown by her kindness to the unfortunate Duke of Monmouth, to whom she had always proved herself a friend in the time of trouble. Although he had perpetually endeavored to invalidate her marriage with his father, and made himself an active accomplice with those who had combined against her life at the time of the Popish plot. After he was condemned to death, he wrote the following earnest letter of supplication to his royal stepmother, imploring her good offices with his uncle, James II. The Duke of Monmouth to Catherine of Braganza, from Ringwood, the 9th of July, 1685. Madam, being in this unfortunate condition, and having none left but your majesty, that I think may have some compassion of me, and that, for the last king's sake, makes me take this boldness to beg you to intercede for me. I would not desire your majesty to do it, if I were not, from the bottom of my heart, convinced how I have been deceived into it, and how angry God Almighty is with me for it. But I hope, madam, your intercession will give me life to repent of it, and to show the king, that is James the Second, how really and truly I will serve him hereafter, and I hope, madam, your majesty will be convinced that the life you save will be ever devoted to your service, for I have been, and ever shall be, your majesty's most dutiful and obedient servant, Monmouth. Catherine made the most earnest entreaties for the life of this rash and misguided man, and it was in consequence of her passionate solicitations that James was induced to grant him an interview. That he did not receive mercy was no fault of hers. During her residence at Somerset House, Catherine amused herself with giving regular concerts. 
Her love of music equaled her passion for dancing, in which she no longer indulged, nor in any other kind of gaiety. Soon after the death of Charles II, Catherine wrote to her brother, Don Pedro, for permission to return to her native land, where she earnestly desired to finish her days. Leave was instantly accorded, and her old attached friend, Count Castel Malor, now in the service of her royal brother, was dispatched from the court of Lisbon to England to make the proper arrangements for her removal. Catherine then changed her mind. The reason was supposed to be that the crown was indebted to her six and thirty thousand pounds for the arrears of her unpunctually paid income, and she determined not to leave England without the money. In January 1688, she commenced a suit against the Earl of Clarendon, who had successively filled the offices of secretary, chamberlain, and lord treasurer to her majesty, for certain monies in which she considered him indebted to her. But whether the dispute was connected with any irregularities in his own accounts, or that she held him responsible for the deficiencies of her income when it was left in arrear, does not by any means appear in the diary of that nobleman. The Earl of Halifax, who had at that time the management of Catherine's pecuniary affairs, prosecuted the suit with great vigor, and the unfortunate Clarendon, in great distress of mind, solicited the interference of his royal brother-in-law and sovereign, James II. He gives the following account of his conversation with that prince, January 31st, 1688. I was, says he, at the king's levee, and when he was dressed, I desired to speak with him, and he took me into an inner room. I told his majesty of my law affairs with the queen dowager, and that his solicitor general was my counsel, and had even taken several fees of me, but that he was now forbid to appear for me. The king declared, It was indeed considered wholly contrary to etiquette, that any counsel of his should plead against the queen dowager, and that it was impossible for him to seem to disoblige her. But, continued King James, I wonder extremely that Queen Catherine should sue you for such a kind of debt, which will not be to her honor when opened in a public court. I have told Lord Feversham, that is Catherine's Chamberlain, my mind on it, and I will, if it comes in my way, speak to the Queen Dowager myself. He asked, if I knew that the Queen Dowager was going to Portugal. I said, no, truly this was the first word I heard of it. His Majesty said, that she had sent him word yesterday by his own confessor, Father Warner, to acquaint him that she intended to go to her own country, that she had acquainted her brother with it, and that an ambassador would speedily come for her. The king expressed himself hurt that Queen Catherine should send to the king of Portugal before she had communicated her resolution to himself, and he observed that he deserved to be better treated by her. It must be indeed confessed, subjoins Lord Clarendon, that King James had been exceedingly kind to her, treating her with the same respect as when the late king was living. James II told Clarendon that he would speak to Queen Catherine that very afternoon, and he would have done so on the previous day, only it was well known that he never went abroad on the 30th of January, out of respect to the memory of his father. This lawsuit with the Queen Dowager alarmed and aroused all the lawyers in the service of her sister-in-law, the Queen Consort, Mary Beatrice, whose Attorney General was on the alert to know whether the interests of his royal mistress would not be compromised by the trial. 
then the king's solicitor general began to question whether the prerogative of his royal master was not invaded till the unfortunate ex-treasurer began to surmise that the whole legal swarm meant to rise and devour him king james granted his afflicted brother-in-law another audience in which he affirmed that he was ashamed of the queen dowager's proceedings but he could not interfere with the law which he understood not or control his law officers in what they deemed proper for his interests as to the queen dowager she was a hard woman to deal with and that she already knew his opinion of this suit there is the difficulty in this dispute of only possessing the opinion of the opponent of Catherine of Braganza, and if he is to be credited wholly, she was dealing very hardly with him, because she had allowed his predecessor in her service, Mr. Harvey, who had died as her treasurer, more fees than Clarendon claimed. The case seems to have been that Catherine, in whom love of money increased with years, was grasping all that was possible to add to the large capital of her savings, which she intended to carry off with her to portugal it is possible that lord halifax had alarmed her into the project of departure from england by some hints of the approaching revolution she had again written to her brother don pedro appointing a time for her return and he had dispatched the count de ponteville and his nephew to paris to meet her there early in may she signified her intentions to king james who went himself to Chatham, to select a ship to convey her to Portugal. He made choice of one of the new vessels, which he had lately added to his fine navy, and ordered it to be fitted out for the voyage. Before the end of the month, however, she changed her mind once more, and told her secretary, Sir Richard Bellings, that she had wholly given up her intention of going to Portugal. To the great joy of her household, and no less so of the king, who, on the 29th of May, writes to his son-in-law, the Prince of Orange. The Queen Dowager, being resolved not to go to Portugal, will save me the charge of the great third-rate I was fitting out for her. Twelve days after this, Catherine was present at the accouchement of her royal sister-in-law, the Queen of James II. June 10th, Trinity Sunday, she came soon after eight o'clock in the morning, attended by her Lord Chamberlain, and the married ladies of her household, and took her seat in a chair of state, under a canopy that had been prepared for her near the queen's bed, and never left the room till the little prince was born. She stood godmother to the royal infant, and on the 22nd of October, seven days after she had performed that office, she, at the request of King James, attended at the extraordinary meeting of the Privy Council at Whitehall, to afford her important testimony in the verification of his birth. A chair was placed for Queen Catherine at the king's right hand. As soon as she was seated, King James explained the cause for which he had convened this meeting, and said, That he had given Her Majesty, the Queen Dowager, and the other ladies and lords who were present, the trouble of coming thither to declare what they knew of the birth of his son. Then Catherine, with that grave and dignified simplicity, which is far more characteristic of true modesty than an overstrained affection of delicacy, when the cause of truth requires a statement of important facts, gave her evidence in these words. The king sent for me to the queen's labor. I came as soon as I could, and never left her till she was delivered of the Prince of Wales. This deposition was taken down in writing, and then handed to Her Majesty to attest with her signature, which she did by writing under it, Katharina R. The married ladies who attended her confirmed her evidence by deposing on oath to many circumstantial particulars, 
verifying the birth of the infant prince. King James very properly laid great stress on the testimony of his royal brother's widow, as she was, next to his own consort, the lady of the highest rank in the realm, and could have no motive for favoring an imposition, even if she had not been a person of the most unimpeachable integrity, in word and deed. The very circumstance of Catherine of Braganza, performing the office of godmother to the babe, was of itself a sufficient refutation of the aspersions that party had endeavored to cast on his birth. End of section 32